1: In a warm-up a couple weeks ago, I asked some people what the craziest drink they've ever had was. But it really got me thinking, what is the craziest drink of all time in all of human history? It's difficult to beat cobra blood, and there are some wines that are pretty wild too, but I did a little research and I think I found it. I think I found the craziest fermented beverage of all time. It was drunk by people who lived around 2000 BC in modern-day Turkmenistan. They worshipped in fire temples, literally temples with bright white walls and bonfires in the middle. And the white ash left in the fire was meant to have special religious significance. Their whole religion and culture may have been a prototype of the Zoroastrian religion, who believe they live in a universe with good and evil components, half day, half night. And that everyone has the power of will and choice, the results of which will affect their afterlife. If you make good choices, a sweet smelling maiden will meet you at the bridge to the afterlife and lead you to heaven. If you make bad choices, a foul smelling old woman will lead you. To hell. So a few archaeologists have examined the drinking vessels found in the fire temples, and discovered that these people were drinking a mixed fermented beverage that included ephedra, cannabis, and poppy. So this one beverage, drunk 4,000 years ago, had ephedra, which is a pretty intense stimuli, cannabis, which is just the opposite, as people in Colorado are learning, and poppy, which contains trace elements of morphine and codeine and from which opium is derived. And all these things have been used for pain relief for thousands of years. The drink was essentially a hallucinogenic, an upper, and a downer all in one. The vodka Red Bull of the ancient world. This beverage was possibly adopted by Zoroastrians, a religious group that still exists today but dropped in numbers when their region was invaded by Alexander the Great and the entire religion all but collapsed. Alexander apparently destroyed their royal library, and so many of the main texts and details about Zoroastrianism have been lost. Scholars argue about the main ingredients of the sacred Zoroastrian drink, Haoma, and some say the main ingredient in Haoma was bull urine. Ooh. Others say hallucinogenic mushrooms. Some posit that ergot, a fungus similar to LSD was used. But ephedra-based drinks are the most popular in scholarly debate, and this ephedra cannabis poppy drink may have been the mother drink of it all. Essentially, if we skip over the Middle Ages, it's pretty clear that our ancestors knew how to party.
0: It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at offsetpartners.com. That's O F F S E T. Partners with an S.com. Offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand. Stuart Piggott on the show today, wine journalist. Hello, sir. How are you? Uh, I'm feeling on top of the world <laughs> because
2: I got the first copy of my book today from the publisher.
0: What's it called? Best white wine on earth: the Riesling story. Oh, okay. So you don't you don't leave them guessing as to what it might be, but you. Uh, no, there's right no shadow
2: there. of a doubt. <laughs> That's right.
0: How did you come to that conclusion?
2: Um, I should have. I actually came to this conclusion a very long time ago. I got seriously interested in Riesling. 30 years ago, that's when I started writing about wine. And there were two things which kind of hit me all at once. One, there was not many other people writing about that subject. So it was a a niche which I could occupy in a way that I certainly couldn't have done with, let's say, Red Bordeaux back then. There were already so many people writing about it. A young man called Robert Parker was just beginning to make a name for himself. you know, there was an opportunistic side to it, but there was also a great excitement. Yeah, I mean, there were not that many great Rieslings being produced at that time, but they there were some out there and I got to taste them very early on in the after discovering that wine was something seriously cool and they made a huge impression upon me.
0: And how did you get that opportunity?
2: Um I was lucky. Um um When I was a poor art student, I did all kinds of jobs to keep myself afloat, mostly boring office work, which today, you know, has been done by computer since 20 years. Yeah. And then suddenly I got a job as a barman. I must emphasize not some barman um, at the Tate Gallery restaurant in London, which at that point had a sensational wine list. And I, I was effectively preparing all the wines, which were then brought to the table by the waitresses, a strange system, uh, particularly seen from today's point of view. And I got to taste them all that way. And we had some very generous customers. There was, for example, one American businessman who was in once or twice a month, and he almost always left me a full glass in the bottle and said, that is yours.
0: And why do you think you hit it off with them, having not gone to the table necessarily?
2: He asked me to come to the table and um, perhaps, you know, I didn't know very much and I didn't pretend to know much. Yeah. So my attitude was perhaps as unpretentious as his own. um, And, you know, there was some kind of bonding for that reason. You had grown up in England. Yes. In a very boring suburb of London. Think about the most boring corner of Staten Island you can possibly imagine, and that's what it was like.
0: And at one point, you ended up moving to Berlin.
2: Yes. Um, My life went in several phases, and there was a big transformation uh, during the 1980s. I went from being a poor art student who got that lucky job, you know, an interesting job with a very exciting product. Um, and getting hooked on that by the end of that decade, I had left England. I had moved to the Mosul Valley. I was determined to get to know a really important wine region from the inside through the hearts and minds of the people who were involved in every aspect of the wine and the tourism, which adhered to it and still does. Your wife at the time had been a sommelier. Um, I met my wife for the first time back in uh, 1992. So um, at that point, I was alone. You had moved already to Berlin. I had, time no, no. I had moved to the Mosul Valley in 1989. And I was just about packing up my stuff to go back to London when I met my wife, yeah, who had. Um, Left her first husband and gone to one of the first SOM courses, which uh, existed in Germany, and uh, passed that with flying colors, top of her class. She's top of her class in everything. And um, yeah, and uh, we then moved to Berlin together.
0: What was it that made you say Riesling, though? I mean, I get that it was an unoccupied field and you could move in and call it your own. I get that you spoke German.
2: I, and I, I was not calling it my own. I, I was just seeing a chance there. And that combination of chance and personal passion seemed to make a lot of sense. Um, but it was not an easy ride, those first years. Oh, my God. Hotel Bogota. Hotel Bogota, sadly, closed recently. Yeah, there was a big campaign to try and keep it open. A crazy, um, eccentric hotel in West Berlin where I lived twice for each time for about half a year. And in each during each of those periods, I, I wrote a book. Um, the books which I wrote um, during the 90s and the last decade, um, almost all of them appeared only in German. Really, my most... Mature work is totally unknown in the
0: English-speaking world. But it feels like in a way that you were sort of chased out of the English-speaking world by certain people who were upset with things you had said and threatening lawsuits mm, and
2: stuff. No, no. The threatening lawsuits um, came after I moved to Germany. Um, I think some people, some wine growers, had a very, um, took a very narrow view also because of lack of experience in dealing with criticism.
0: It was a burgeoning field.
2: Uh, yeah, this was a very interesting time to be a wine journalist in Germany because it, it went from there being just one handful of those people doing it full-time in Germany um, to a much larger field. And there were so many publications which were suddenly interested in having doing some wine coverage. There were many, many openings during that period. So you could kind of rise with the ships? Yeah, I rode
0: a wave. You know, if the wave hadn't
2: been there, then everything would have developed very
0: differently. But at the same time, you'd already been under some fire for a Madeira piece at one point. Oh, that's my God. Have you researched your stuff? Well, young
2: man, I think you deserve a big prize. Yes. Um, Without intending to, I suddenly found myself in a shitstorm after writing a story about Madeira and its problems back in 1991. You know, it's an autonomous region, so they have their own government and. I was, the subject of my article was brought up in a cabinet meeting. Really? Yeah, and I was told, don't come back to the island for several years. Have you been back? No, I haven't, but I would love to, because I have read a lot about the, the, the history of Madeira in a wonderful book called Oceans of Wine, which tells the story of how Madeira is not a British wine, it's a Portuguese-American wine. Oh, Okay. Like a symbiotic relationship. A symbiotic. Um, uh, I f- I'm sadly, I've forgotten the author's name, but he describes it as a uh, transatlantic conversation in which messages were going in both directions. And through this interaction, uh, Madeira went from being a very basic product, which was drunk really the year after it had been made, maximum two years later, to being the sophisticated and complex product, which, which you can find today if you're interested. But what did you say in your piece? I basically said that a lot of stuff was going wrong and had been for quite a long time. And that there were really very modest signs of improvement and that a lot of work was still to be done. But I suppose,
0: yeah, you no, know, I expressed myself in a pointed fashion. But do you think that the subsequent fear that surrounded that article kind of led you in a way of keeping with appointed fashion of delivery? Well, I have to say,
2: um, on that trip, I met a colleague of mine. Um, she would prefer not to be referred to by her real name, so I'm going to call her Delight. And uh, she said to me some magic words one evening. She said, I'm interested in doing gonzo wine journalism. I was vaguely familiar with what Hunter S. Thompson had done, but I must emphasize vaguely. I had not read all of those books by any means at all. So um, it was a very vague idea, but it was still a very exciting idea. And I decided that I was going to pursue that path. And um, I stumbled a lot at the beginning, but um, I would say by about 2000, I was beginning to
0: move decisively and
2: with a certain degree of professionalism in that direction.
0: So what haven't we read in English? What are the books that you wrote in German? Uh,
2: I wrote a trio of uh, lengthy books. I'm talking about four, or 500 pages each about wine and globalization. Um, they were called Brave New Wine World, Wild Wine World, and Wine Far Away. And I looked at a, an incredibly wide range of subjects in there, everything from California Cult Cabernet and what that world of wine is really about um, to Japan's relationship with wine and sake. Sake is a contrast, you know, the an indigenous product of very great sophistication and um, a whole slew of other stuff. Um, tropical wine growing was totally fascinating. It was just developing at that moment. And yeah, I mean, I got hooked on this damn thing in a way that I had not been before. I mean, before I'd been interested in Riesling. And you know, it's still the subject I come back to most often. But the whole phenomenon of what wine is or could be, could become, became totally intoxicating for me.
0: So let me bring up two parallels to Hunter S. Thompson. One, it seems like the travel is part of the story quite often with you. It seems like you're logging quite a bit of miles quite often in different far-flung locales. And then two, political commentary interwoven with the regular narrative. So it's not just a straight-up wine commentary. Mm-hmm. There's also, uh, you know, discussion of how that's similar to, you know, hell in a handbasket politics. You
2: know. Yes, yeah, absolutely. I mean, wine is um, is part of the economy, and... Uh, all things economic are also political. Um, uh, um, we are the ninety nine percent. Interesting idea. I, I think it is actually ninety nine point nine percent. I'm always looking at those the ideas which are out there already and asking, "Well, how does this idea tick? Has it been expressed adequately? Is there something much more to this?" Yeah. And what about that travel? Yes. the the travel is also a kind of drug. It's an intoxicant. It, it alters the, my state of mind and therefore enables me to write stuff which I would not be able to write otherwise. How so? I like the sense, as I say, I, I'm intoxicated by the feeling of cultural dissonance, dislocation. Being in a different culture, even coming to New York City from Berlin and staying a lengthy time for the first time back at the end of 2012, radically changed the way I was thinking because things function differently in a different place. Globalization here here or there, there's always um, grit in the machine, stuff which will not let itself be reduced and, and ground up and destroyed by globalization. And... That's, that dislocation forces you to think, to see things from different perspectives. And that is really something very radical. That enables you to take a mass of ideas which you thought were familiar to you, shake them out of the bag, which is your head, onto the ground or onto a table, and they arrange themselves in a, a completely new
0: pattern. What inspired the latest book?
2: Yeah. um, I started research for Best White Wine on Earth on 1st of February, 2012. And I had this idea that, well, I've written a book about reasoning before, but it must be possible to do this again and to do something, to write it in a different way, to tell the story in an American way somehow. And that is part of what the book is. But... Within the first few days of research, I was suddenly slamming into stuff, which told me that the subject was a very different one from the one I had imagined. Because I was in Sydney, Australia, and there was a summer of Riesling that was totally different to the American one. In you mean st- in the style. seasons are reversed? Uh, no, not that. I'm kidding. <laughs> exactly. It, it was, they had taken a, the basic idea and approached it in their own, totally their own way. Then I jumped on a plane to New Zealand, and I was expecting nothing. But suddenly I was back in the summer of Riesling. But yet again, another one, a third one, which was totally different.
0: So you're saying you started to see excitement about the subject around the world?
2: Yeah, I saw excitement about the around, around the world, and I saw all manner of creativity. People picking up a ball which had been thrown in their direction and running with it.
0: Huh? And so Riesling seemed to be more of a global story than a German story.
2: Very much so, yes. I mean, Germany is the homeland. It's the point where it comes from. For Riesling winemakers around the world, it's still a major source of inspiration. No question. But they are all doing their own thing. And very few of them are copying what's, what's being done in Germany. Where else might I find Riesling not having thought about it in the past? Well, for example, it's a short distance away from the Finger Lakes is um, a major Riesling region. And Riesling has been growing in New York State with just over a thousand acres. It is now the most important vinifera variety in the state. Um, Number one. Number one, clearly ahead of Merlot. And I think most people think Merlot is the number one. That's a relatively new situation in the last few years. I think a lot of wine growers and a lot of winemakers in the Finger Lakes finally got it. Riesling is the thing we can always do well. And some of the other grape varieties one year goes one way and the next year goes one time up, another time down. Where else is big for Riesling? Um, The biggest place in the US is Washington State with about 5,300 acres of Riesling. That is double the figure of a decade ago. And the interesting thing about that doubling is that they are selling all that wine. It, inventory is not backing up. This is not some idea they have in their heads. It 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 is well m- matched to the development of the market.
0: Is the market for say Washington state wines really hinged on say cabernets and merlot blends that you know cost more than $100 retail and then this is something that they can sell earlier and for less money.
2: Yes, it is, but I think, you know, $100 plus a bottle, fine. Some of the wines with those price tags are wonderful. I'm the last person who's going to say that that isn't so. Well, I mean, you have sort of said it before, though. (laughs) Like, what do you... Well, yeah, sure. Like, it's one of the rules that you have. There are a lot of wines which are very expensive, which are not worth a fraction of the money which is being charged. I mean, uh, not to point the finger at Washington State, but in general, you've said that wine I mean, quality uh, This is not something specific, specific to Washington State. This is something. This is a global phenomenon. These, the, the category of Icon wines or whatever else you want to call it, where the price has absolutely nothing to do with production costs or marketing costs. It's, uh, you know, what can we get away with basically? And to me, it is a way greater achievement to produce 5 million bottles plus of a Riesling which costs $7.99, $8.99, max nine ninety nine, like the regular Columbia Valley bottling of Riesling from Chateau Saint-Michel, which is a delicious wine and sells really well because people like it, that to me is a very serious achievement
0: but in a way perhaps uh, a little cheaper to produce no oak you can ferment it in stainless steel I mean,
2: sure these are advantages definitely on the on the costing front yeah i mean if you're if you're working with um with new oak barrels on 100% then this is st- sticking several dollars in the price of that bottle once it's gone through the, the you know the whole the
0: whole system do you think the riesling's benefited from that in a sense that like people want less oak in the wine and maybe they're willing to give riesling a shot
2: I think that, that has been very – that's a very good description of the story of the last years. I think people got over the prejudice that Riesling is only sweet and that's only for – I won't use the word.
0: Um, is that a tear? Are you tearing up right now? <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, pussies. Oh, okay. okay yeah. Okay, okay. Um, I think people, a lot of people got over that um, or realized that it was just an absurd idea. And I think there's a general, you know, quite apart from the Riesling phenomenon, there is a general, slow, general appreciation that maybe a hell of a lot of oak is not the best way to make a wine. Um, oak is not a wine-specific flavor, yeah? I mean, the flavors which, which are inherent to wine are... The stuff which comes from the grapes and the stuff which comes from the yeast, because without the yeast, you can't turn the grapes into wine. Those are the bare essentials. And if we look back to the time before the oak barrel was being used at all, then the amphora is effectively the stainless steel tank of antiquity. It was not giving a pronounced flavor to the wine, and they liked that because they were able to capture the grape flavors and the flavors which result from the interaction of grapes and yeast.
0: So you mentioned the sweetness issue before. Is that changing a little bit?
2: Um, I think we see several changes there. I think people have, uh, particularly younger people, are much more confident. They say, okay, it's sweet. I like it. It's delicious. What's the problem? Yeah? And I like that democratic spirit, and I think that is something which is healthy and also very American, really. This, um, oh my God, can I do that? Is that socially acceptable? What will my uh, uh, neighbors think of me? This is all bullshit to my mind. And we need to get away from that stuff. And it's wonderful to see people trusting their own palates more. But then there is also the phenomenon that the people who have been drinking sweet Riesling for some time have slowly been shunting down in the drier direction and just a small movement on that scale by which i mean it's still a sweet riesling but it's got more freshness more crispness this is making the wine so much more food compatible
0: and do you think that that's a factor of global warming adding a little bit more balance to a wine that you know you can ferment a little drier um that's a good question um
2: So fundamentally, American Rieslings are high in natural acidity, and actually today they are higher in acidity than are the European originals. Is that true? It is very much so, yes. If you look at the pH readings, and pH is the thing which really tells you how intense the acidity is, then the pH is lower. That means the acidity is more intense in American wines than the European
0: Is that because they're not on some really steep south-facing slope right by a river?
2: Well, you know, my book tries to address those fundamental issues. Being close to a river does not have any serious effect, microclimatic effect, upon the vineyard next to it. Um, Apart from the fact that water is evaporating from the surface of the river when it is warm, which is increasing atmospheric humidity. But when the when the river is warmer than the vineyard, the vine is basically dormant. So this really does not make much difference at all. And you know, there's the second problem: most rivers are not you know moving at a snail's pace. Most of them are moving fast. There's not
0: really much warming effect then. So no reflection off the yes, there water is, but it,
2: the effect is so small of that reflection of sunlight or off the water. I would say it is effectively insignificant so it sounds damn good though it's one of those great <laughs> wine myths which i have to debunk
0: <laughs> well so then is the fact that there's so many uh wine regions that are around rivers have to do more with transportation to cities like getting the wine out uh, of there this this
2: definitely has um a lot to do with it just think back to the to the period before there were roads rivers were the easiest way to transport heavy bulky goods like barrels of wine Yeah. And what rivers do is that they often carve a course down in through hill hill country, creating, they created those steep slopes. And that is seriously interesting when you get as far north as 50, the 50th uh, parallel, because then the sun is much lower in the sky than it is here in New York City at around 40,
0: yeah, 40 degrees north. And you've actually explored winemaking above that parallel. What did that seem like to you? Um,
2: Yes, mad fool that I am. uh, Spending a lot more time here in New York City and um, rather less time in Berlin. I have planted a small vineyard in the Berlin area. I was in that vineyard a few weeks ago with my hoe, um, you know, doing weed control work. Um, I have planted this vineyard not with Riesling. But a red, new red grape variety called Pinotine, which uh, was bred. Uh, by, I don't know what that is. It was bred in Switzerland by a guy called Valentin Blatner. It is almost f- completely fungal resistant. I mean, in a good year, you might have to spray spray with uh, copper twice. Um, you can probably get away without spraying anything else. Um, in a wetter year, you might have to do a little bit more work, but still a tiny fraction of what a conventional wine grower does and an even smaller fraction of the sprayings which a conventional organic producer would have to do.
0: I think above and beyond most wine writers, I, I've seen you have a willingness to do harvest, to do vineyard work, to get out to obscure vineyards and check out the muller turgau Is that true?
2: Um. Yes, it is. Um, You know, wine grows. It is an agricultural crop. And I believe very, very strongly in not trying to hide that fact, quite the opposite of trying to understand that as well as possible.
0: Yeah. And what insights have you perhaps gleaned directly from working vines that you maybe wouldn't have gotten if you? It
2: is damned hard work, um, particularly if it is all handwork. Um, Most vineyards um, on the planet are cultivated almost entirely or entirely by machines. Um, But once you start doing everything by hand, this is a lot of hours. And the steeper the land is, the more hours you will need per vine. Yeah.
0: When I grew up, you know, kids that were into computers were real geeks, and people didn't want to talk to them, and when I grew up in the wine business, people who were into Burgundy and Riesling were real geeks, and people didn't really want to talk to them, and now the geeks rule in both fields. Uh, Any connection for you, and why the rise? Oh, my God. Oh, no idea. Um, I
2: try very hard not to be a geek. You know, I love going to the movies. Um, I love eating ice cream and... Doing all the
0: regular stuff. This sounds like one of those interviews from like uh, Blade Runner. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like, I enjoy eating ice cream, and I have strong feelings about my. My mother gave me the killing yeah. jar. Say only the positive things which come into <laughs> your mind when you think of your mother. <laughs> I, I'm sure you're fully human. I didn't mean to imply otherwise. I just, you know, I don't know. So you don't think you're a geek? You're. you're I, a, I try very hard not to be. Okay. Why? Because you want to connect with a broader audience, or...?
2: Um, well,
0: yeah, that, that's, I suppose, the indirect
2: result of that, but uh, mm-hmm. for me, perhaps more important is the, is the simple fact that I don't want to lose connection with the way regular people experience wine. They are the majority of consumers. Uh, very important to know how uh, to get an idea at least of how they're thinking.
0: And once you're a wine geek, that becomes very, very difficult. I alluded to your rules about wine and, uh, earlier, and one of them is not to step on someone else's wine experience because that's kind of the, one of the worst things you can do, says the rule. And at what point did you decide that there was a certain type of wine person that you didn't want to be? Well, you know, I still bump into wine geeks who
2: say things to other people like, no, this one will taste so much better when it's older. Um, The one you the one you didn't like so much, that's the one to drink now. I mean, come on, let's get real. Everybody has their own taste. Um, You know, it it, it's like flowers or (laughs) movies or music. Everybody is built differently, and different things touch different people. And I do have some kind of very fundamental respect for that.
0: But we have seen trends change a bit. So it would seem that if people liked one style of flower bouquet before, they seem to prefer a different one now.
2: Well, taste is also a matter of habit. You know, you can take a, um, a heavy metal geek. You can lock him up in solitary confinement and play Mozart at him eight hours a a day every day for a year, and he'll come out with a different feeling about Mozart than he went in with, yeah. So... um, You can also do that with
0: Garth Brooks. I'm just throwing that out there. (laughs) I mean, it's true.
2: Yes. You You can do this with anything. And if other people are going with something, then uh, how many people really have the backbone to say, well, actually, I don't like it. Of course, there is fashion, there is herd instinct. And there is habit, yeah. But that doesn't alter the fact that when you pick up a glass of wine, anybody picks up a glass of wine and they take a sip, either they like the taste or they don't, uh, or they like it a lot, and it, there is some kind of reaction, or possibly there is no reaction, uh, if it's the world's most bo- boring Pinot Grigio. Of course, some people want that. They want the wine that tastes of nothing. Um, have to respect that preference as well,
0: Yeah. When I think about it, someone goes to Berlin, they decide that they're anti-group psychosis and anti-herd mentality. Mm. I mean, is that sort of ingrained in the idea of the history of Berlin? Like the idea that, you know, you're not supposed to go with everybody else and start killing people and you got to respect minority rights. I mean, is that part of the the story Um, of Berlin?
2: I mean, the first point is Berlin as a whole um, never As never supported the nazis they never had a majority in the city there were other places where they did so i don't think it's so surprising that after the war the that you know berlin should have become one of the places where it is least acceptable to do any of that shit you know even the tiniest little bit of it is regarded as absolutely beyond the pale and if anybody in public life were to make even a, sl- you know, even a comment which was, well, you couldn't be sure whether it was anti-Semitic or not, they would lose their job. They would be out. Yeah. And this is this is perhaps very healthy. Um sometimes it can be a little bit too extreme, perhaps. But I'd rather have it that way than the other.
0: Pinot Noir and Riesling, they seem to have risen at the same time. Mm-hmm. And often I'm wondering with both where the tannins are do people not want to drink tannins anymore i mean what's the story
2: um you, you'd be surprised what the tannic tannin content of you know a charming floral sweet Mosel wine is
0: please There's tell me a, there
2: is know. a lot in there but you don't taste it it's subliminal but it is still doing something to that the taste of that wine um, this was something which was only discovered recently. This was, it was a byproduct of the Eroica project of uh, Dr. Lozen and Chateau Saint-Michel. The first vintage of that wine was slightly tannic. And um, Ernie Lozen decided, okay, we're going to get a slew of, of other Rieslings from around the world. We're going to analyze them. We're going to find out what, this, what the, the tannin picture is. And he said, I couldn't believe it, Stuart. The Mosel wines were the highest. J.J. Prum was really high. It does not taste tannic in the literal sense at all. But obviously, this is part of the, those wines' personality.
0: Quite often, I feel with Germany, it's like certain other countries, like Australia would actually come to mind, where people say, well, the wines that are popular in the United States aren't the same wines that are popular within the country. Yes. So, for instance, when I talk to some people, they say, oh, Marcus Molitor is huge in Germany for mm. a certain kind of... Yes, critic and a for a certain kind of buyer of consumer yeah but here we don't we don't hear about it are there other examples of that the,
2: the one of the problems for german wines in the usa is that you really need a handful of exciting new importers who go out there and pick up the the new rising stars particularly the people making good dry and medium dry wines um there's so many exciting things there which are not making it over to the U.S. yet. But I do emphasize, yet.
0: You think there's room for another German portfolio of some you Oh, repute. several. Several. And what is your relationship to someone like Terry Thies? Um, Terry has done very important
2: work for, for German wine as a whole and particularly for Riesling over the decades. I think we have... Um, a fundamental difference of opinion about dry wines. I think he has v- very little interest in them. It's just not his palate. Um, and it's I I find it a little bit sad that he's not a little bit more open-minded for that aspect of, of Germany. It's like, um, you know, life comes in many colors and many moods and... Um, even the sad and more uh, tragic things—they uh, are part of life, yeah. No? And I try to see everything that way. I, I like stylistic diversity. To me, there is no limit to how much stylistic diversity is
0: good. Tesh recently left the VDP, which I thought was a surprising move. You reported about it. Why might someone leave the VDP?
2: Um. Well, why does a rock group break up? I believe the usual um, reason which they give is musical differences. And I think um, it was the wine equivalent of that. Um, I think he felt he just didn't fit well enough and hadn't done so for quite some time. Um, This is not a quality issue. It's It's a matter of style and approach and possibly also some ...personality conflicts.
0: Is it really important to... ...if Riesling is going to be as successful as Pinot Noir... ...to not make it a German story? I mean, are there certain hang-ups that the global market has... ...with buying German wine that would be easier to circumvent... ...if this wasn't just a German narrative?
2: I think you've made an important point. Certainly in many markets the acceptance of German wines... ...has increased considerably during recent years... There are place, certainly places where there is a lingering subliminal prejudice against things German. That's true. Yeah. Um, I mean, the fact is that Riesling is not a just a German story. Um, Germany has by far the largest area of Riesling with about 55,000 acres. But You're, who's number two? The uh, USA is now number two. Yeah. With about 12,500 to 13,000 acres. That's a big change over 10 years ago. Um, 10 years ago, America was number four in the global ranking. Um, So Germany no longer has the majority of the Riesling vineyards in the world. And I think this is a very important fact to make people aware of, that as important as Germany is to Riesling, as... Uh, the point of origin of this genetic material, also as a source of very many technological innovations which are important for Riesling winemaking. For example, sterile filtration was invented in Germany. And as much as it has also offered the world a palette of different wine styles which have enabled winemakers around the world to do very interesting things and not just with Riesling, um, this is not the whole story. The story is much bigger and much more cosmopolitan than that.
0: I haven't heard you yet mention the term Austria.
2: Um, Austria made its biggest splash with Grüner Veltliner. One of the slogans of the German wine promotion people is Riesling and Co. So I'm just going on the the Riesling road trip too, and the motto is Riesling and Co. This is a very good motto because not only in Germany does Riesling grow happily. And in Peace, alongside other grape varieties, it does so right around the world. In Australia, it grows next, right next to Shiraz, or Syrah. Sir, and in Austria, it's growing right next to Grunewald Lina. And they complement each other beautifully. So Austria's biggest message to the world has been Grunewald Lina. And I think Riesling has been a little bit in the shadows of that grape. But perhaps now people's appreciation of Austrian wine is becoming more manifold, deeper. And, uh, you know, we've seen Blaufränkisch come up very fast indeed to grab a very important market niche. And
0: um, Riesling is certainly of comparable importance for Austria. There seem to be two kinds of Riesling drinkers, the ones who want something young and the ones who want something old. I don't get a lot of demand for in the middle.
2: In the middle, the wines can sometimes be a little bit disappointing because once the youthful freshness goes, it sometimes takes a few years for the really exciting mature flavors to develop. So sometimes, for certain regions very often, those years in the middle, one, occasionally two or three could be four or five in an extreme case, the wine is not really very satisfying, either for the
0: group of people who like to drink the wines young or for the people who like to drink it mature. Do you see different markets in different pockets of the world? I mean, it's often said that the Germans like to drink it young. Here in America, I, I definitely see more young women who want to drink it young and more older guys who want to drink it old. Well, the wines are certainly more
2: charming and more fruity. In their youth, the fruity and floral aromas are not there in the same way in the mature wines. You have a completely different register of aromas there. And, well, you know, if I look out of the window, um, it's a beautiful sunny day. It's warm without being brutally hot. You know, a glass of fresh fruity Riesling sounds like a good idea.
0: And what about the change in cuisine in America? Has it helped along Riesling? Enormously.
2: But I I think also um, the kind of people who eat the very traditional American food have also started to realize that wine tastes good. You know, it can sound so disparaging or pejorative to say Middle America, but there is so much of that food has a, a hint of sweetness to it. And then there's the spicy stuff, you know, the barbecue the Tex-Mex, the intense flavor of sauce with the ribs, those dishes are just dynamite with medium sweet to, to sweet Rieslings.
0: And I think some people have been finding that out. What about the petrol character of some old wines or even some young wines?
2: <clears throat> well, I would consider the, the petrol character is a particular substance. It's called TDN. Even the scientists call it that rather than the full name because it goes on and on and on and on. Um. An intense TDN or petrol aroma in a young Riesling is, to my mind, a fault. A young wine ought to have the charming uh, aromas, and the petrol aroma is definitely one which belongs in the mature wine category. I think actually a bunch of people are referring to petrol when actually what they're smelling is something else. What would that be? Well, there are a bunch of uh, yeasty aromas. I mean, I have a whole palette of... um, of descriptors for those yeasty aromas. They can be so, so different. It's a whole world of aromatics. And um, some of those are very intense and rather piercing. And I think some people are calling that petrol, and I don't think it is. What about the sponty situation? A spontaneous fermentation or wild ferment is something which can work incredibly well with Riesling. The risks of it with Riesling are much lower than with many other grape varieties because uh, Riesling has so much acidity and that's a natural preservative. So it also works as a bactericide, you know, it stops the um, the ugly bugs from going apeshit. Uh, natural f- wild ferment wines can have very ugly aromas if it goes wrong. And it goes wrong relatively seldom with Riesling. And When it works, then I think you get a range of aromas which are far removed from the fruity and the floral, but in the right quantity, that is, if it isn't just a hunk of funk, a little hint of that can make the wine even more exciting.
0: One of the trends that's really sort of taken off in other areas of the world is the whole natural wine idea or using less intervention. Not so much with Riesling, really, in any part of the world. Why might that be in... Um, The natural wine category
2: is, to my mind, um, misnamed. Um, It is not natural to plant vines in rows. It is not natural to prune them every year.
0: Um, Making wines in amphoras is also not natural. But I remember there used to be this thing called Super Tuscans, and nobody thought they could fly. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like So, besides the name thing.
2: Yeah. Um, Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, this is an interesting field of... Experimentation, to my mind, and there are a few wines out there which do seem to have found their own stylistic niche in a positive sense. Um, that that meaning that they are not faulty; they don't smell of mouse pee. That to me is a classic wine fault. They are not grossly oxidised. That is also, to my mind, a classic wine fault. But I think a lot of the appeal of the natural wines is built on a misnomer, on the idea that the the sulfites added to 99.9 percent of the world's wine production are somehow um, a form of evil, which is um, trying to take over the world and destroy and destroy the human race. This is complete
0: bullshit. But why so little interest in Germany or in Austria? Or um, in there are
2: there are wines of that kind in Germany. They tend not to find a U.S. importer.
0: Well, I mean, talking to Clemens Bush, he told me there were six people that worked like he did, and. Country where there's hundreds of growers, so I mean, I'm are not, there really I'm that many? I'm not sure
2: about that. I think he's exaggerating slightly. He might not be familiar with some of the other people, and you know, and even if there are, a, is a, only a small number working the way he does. Um, the so-called field of natural wine, it, this is a very mixed group of people doing all kinds of different things. And I promise you, uh, there's a lot of producers who have experimented with small quantities in that direction, you know, tentatively, cautiously looking for a path to create a new wine. Um, this seems to me a very healthy approach, you know, um, the idea that you can turn everything upside down and revolutionize your entire production with with the first vintage and it all works. Whoa, that is incredibly ambitious.
0: How are you working your own vines?
2: Um, my vines... Uh, I don't own the vines. I don't own the soil. Um, It's part of a, let me see, I have to quickly calculate, um, six and a half acre vineyard. I have about half an acre there, which has been planted, you know, according to my ideas and it's been cultivated according to my ideas. But this vineyard just outside Berlin in a little sleepy little place called Tuplitz, this has been cultivated organically since the day it was planted. And I'm all in favor of the way they're doing that. I think they're doing a great job. They're working on all the important things, such as getting the most mixed possible cover crop growing. That biodiversity, I think, is very important. Um, If you're going to work in uh, organically long-term, this is something I think you really ought to be putting a lot of energy into. And they've done a great job in in a short time. They took it over in 2012 and... Um, had two mediocre vintages. You know, nature was not kind those first two years, and they turned out some very nice wines.
0: It's a good home for my project. A lot of what we've discussed today seems to be emerging, you know, recent changes, changes in the last decade, new plantations. Why call the book The Greatest Wine on Earth? called Best White Wine on Earth. Well, you know. It isn't called The Greatest The.
2: There is no the <laughs> in the title, just like it's called Facebook, not The
0: Facebook. <laughs> Maybe there should be a the in the title, you know? Um, Definite Articles. No, <laughs> no. but I mean, why is, it, why is it called that as opposed to what could be a really great wine in it a few a years? It is a statement of my belief, and it is
2: simultaneously a poke in the eye For bullshit Chardonnay. And a bunch of other stuff which... um, Look at Viognier. There are a handful of fantastic wines. Often they're modestly priced, the best ones. The best balanced ones, to my mind. Um, Some of the expensive stuff is shit awful. Please don't force me to drink that single vineyard Gigal Contria. I think this is one of the most grossly overpriced and grossly overrated wines on the entire planet. I was at a blind tasting recently. People hated it. Hated it. Yeah. Um, So there's a bunch of overrated things out there, and Riesling is still underrated. So it seemed like a good thing to do. And, you know, it is meant with a little irony. I do have my tongue in my cheek, and I mean it seriously at the same time.
0: So I think I kind of get you. You know, But when you go out and uh, hit the road on the road trip, Mm. Riesling & Co., and you talk to people who aren't necessarily super wine aficionados, or when you do talk to super wine aficionados, I mean, how does the Stuart Piggott go over? And I give it the definite article, the Stuart (laughs) (laughs) Piggott.
2: Well, I say to them, you know, if you're not convinced, and I don't expect you to be convinced right away, then just go out, find a Riesling you like. And buy a Chardonnay or a Sauvignon Blanc or whatever else it is for the same price and put them next to each other on the table and see what you think. And I think very often, way more often than most people imagine, Riesling comes out of that comparison very well. And, you know, I don't mean that only for the sub $10 a bottle category, which we already talked about. I also mean that for, you know, way, way up the price scale. Recently, I heard a story from somebody who was in one of New York City's top restaurants and was talking to the Somme, and the Somme was saying, we only stock Chardonnays which will age. My friend asked, what does that mean? And he said, well, they have to last five years. I say, only five years? This seems to me a very low bar, you know? Um, You know, most of those wines on the shelf are in the 40, 50, and way, way more dollars a bottle um, categories. Well, Riesling's in that price category ought to go decades,
0: not just a few years. It does seem that Germany provides some of the best white wine values on earth if it's just about value.
2: Um, It's not just about value, but yes, it does. Germany uh, still has a great advantage there in comparison to particularly France and Italy. And what is that advantage? It is a qualitative advantage and a
0: price point advantage. So we have a v- value for money advantage. But I mean, where does that come from? The fact that these have been owned for a long time <coughs> and worked for a long time in this fashion? Or why Why is it? That which is underrated is underpriced. But with all these Simple summer of Rieslings all around the world, I mean, hasn't the price... I mean, it certainly seems like the older vintages that were in the market have... Been drunk at this point.
2: Yeah, there very few price Riesling prices have have moved up significantly in the last years. Um, the change for Germany, for example, has been the creation of a new category of high-end dry wines, the GGS. Um, everybody calls them that in Germany as well. By the way, Grosses Gewächs is a bit of a tongue twister, and it you know even the Germans prefer GG. Um, these are new wines created at a new a new price point. And also that category the last years has been pretty stable.
0: But when I talk to those producers, it seems like we move to something else, which is Mm. instead of great value for money, sort of a Burgundy envy, you know, a white Burgundy envy. Yeah, there's certainly an element of that. But
2: I don't think you can dismiss the entire category in that way. Um, That category is a very mixed group of wines, and uh, some of them are trying too hard to imitate Burgundy. Uh, Others have been inspired by Burgundy in a positive sense, in in the sense that they're looking for um, uh, more interesting textural qualities. They're interested in using the long lees or yeast contact in the cellar to give the wines uh, a creaminess and increase the aromatic complexity. That's all positive to my mind.
0: When I look at some of the producers who don't seem to get the same level of respect in the States as I would think that they would, a lot of times a lot of them are using old oak fooder. Yes. And it doesn't seem to be a style that's necessarily caught on so well. I mean, I would think that Immick Baturieberg would be more of a thing. I would think that Becker, which just recently will be Mm. imported, would have been... Loved for a while now, Mm. and it doesn't seem to be the case. Why might that be, or am I wrong? Well, some of the people who are working with those large neutral
2: oak barrels um, and keeping their wines in them for um, you know much more than the regular four, five, six months that is, in a year plus then some of them are making wines which are are really long term stuff. This is this needs some uh, two or three years in the bottle to begin to show. What's really in there. And this, th- those kind of wines, obviously, regardless of whether it's Riesling or something else, the, the marathon runner put up against a sprinter, of course, does not impress in the first moment. But if you force the sprinter to run a marathon, then at some point, the marathon runner is going to pull way, way ahead. And the sprinter is going to struggle
0: and suffer and look pretty shabby. You've traveled all around the world and you have a lot of history, both in Germany and other places, drinking a lot of Riesling, sometimes with quite a bit of age on it, often in situ. Mm. If I were to think of myself as wanting an advanced syllabus for Riesling studies, if I wanted to take it to another level, what might surprise me? What should be on that syllabus? What should I be searching out? I think the, the thing which would surprise you is the way
2: dry Rieslings made 50 and more years ago um, how incredibly well some of those wines have aged. Re- I mean, Austria has some great collections of old wines of that kind, which often show magnificently. Germany, a bit less so. But there are still some amazing wines there. I never forget. Um, it's in, described in the book. Um, uh, a vertical tasting of, um, of dry German Riesling, all from one producer. We started with O9 and worked back to... I think 93 was the last vintage, and nearly all of those wines showed really well. A couple were showing a bit, you're getting a bit tired. But I'm not talking about 2009 back to 1993. I'm talking about 1909 back to 1893. And my favorite wine, the 1899, that was off the fucking scale. It was just one of the
0: most d- delicious dry wines I've ever had. Have we lost some of that, the ability to create that kind of wine with global warming and phylloxera? No,
2: and- I, I, I don't think you can put the blame uh, on global warming. And I think the, the phylloxera mite has also been unfairly treated. You know, I do believe in a person is presumed innocent until proven guilty, and I think the poor old phylloxerot bug has not been treated in that spirit. You see, wine was, before sterile filtration came along, you needed two to three years of ageing in barrel with regular rackings to clarify and stabilize a wine to the point where you could put it in the bottle and you would know that no shit is going to happen. You know, it's not going to re-ferment and explode. and So, this very long elevage, this very long raising of the wine, step by step, at the beginning with a lot of a lot of yeast deposit in it, but with each racking a bit less, a bit less, a bit less, this built wines with a very different aging potential than if you ferment the wine in two weeks, two or three weeks later you do a coarse filtration, a couple of weeks later you do a fine filtration and before Christmas it's in the bottle. No wonder that wine is not going to age, no matter where it comes from or what the grape variety.
0: When I talk to you, it's clear that you're a really smart guy. Does it bother you sometimes that you're not more well-known in, say, the English-speaking world? Well, as
2: I said, you know, I had a great run in Berlin, in Germany. I was able to do stuff that I would never have been able to do if I'd stayed in London. That, that a trilogy of books about wine and globalization would have been utterly impossible. But the downside of that was that this material did not reach the U.S., just like my German-language TV show, for which I'm the co-author and anchor. All of this work is totally unknown here. Well, that's my fault, and that's something I'm working on. What's next for Stuart Piggott? Well, the the book is um, about to come out, and um, I need to make sure that um, America finds out that it's there. I think that is first base, and uh, this is a lot of work, and um, I shall be, um, you know, rolling up my sleeves and getting out there on the road, and something I learned early on when I got involved with wine is never be afraid of hard work. So that's what I'll be doing.
0: Stuart Piggott, sometimes he's hard working, sometimes he's gonzo, either way he's often on the road. Thank you for being here today. Well, thank you for having me over. Stuart Piggott, it's not called The Greatest White Wine on Earth, it's called The Riesling Story, Best White Wine on Earth, look for it soon, and also his other writings and videos. Thank you very much. Thank you. Stuart Piggott. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levi Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett.